The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook if you sign up for a two-week trial of their service. Audible has 40,000 titles available to download. For all the details, follow the links at guardian.co.uk slash audible. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Business Podcast. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. This week, as the Bank of England hedges its bets on future growth and the need for more stimulus, we're joined by a former member of the Bank's Monetary Policy Committee. Plus, people as diverse as the German Finance Minister and Sarah Palin have lined up to condemn the new round of quantitative easing in the US. Will Britain follow suit? And we ask what business leaders can possibly learn from the world of bees. This is The Business from The Guardian. In the studio today, we've got former Bank of England policymaker turned full-time academic and troublemaker, Danny Blancheflower. The social psychologist, Michael O'Malley, is the author of a new book called The Wisdom of Bees. And The Guardian's economics editor, Larry Ellett, is on board. Welcome to you all. We start today with the Bank of England and its quarterly economic health check, the Inflation Report. The Governor, Mervyn King, said that Britain's recovery was still uncertain, although he did not yet announce another round of quantitative easing although he did say the bank stood ready to act. At present, there are large upside and downside risks to inflation. Monetary policy has to balance these risks. Only with hindsight will it be clear which has predominated. But there is, as you would expect and should want, a vigorous debate between members and a range of views that's wider than usual about the weight to attach to those different risks. The MPC will continue to judge the balance of risks each month. And like the English batsman preparing to defend the ashes, watching carefully, perfectly balanced in the crease, ready to play forward or back according to the length of the incoming delivery. So the MPC will watch the incoming data carefully, ready to adjust policy in either direction in order to keep inflation on track to meet the 2% target in the medium term. Jonathan Agnew. Sorry, Mervyn King there. Larry, <laughs> you were in the Inflation Port press conference. I wasn't in. There was an awful lot of talk about uncertainty, extreme range of views, all the rest of it. What's that telling us? Uh, not very much. I mean, I thought you could boil what Mervyn King said down to three small bullet points. One, we haven't got the first idea of what's happening. Uh, we don't know whether inflation's too high or too low. Secondly, we're fighting like cats in a bag over it on the MPC, and there are some of us who think that inflation is too high and some of us think inflation is going too low. And because we're A, we're fighting, and B, we've got no idea really what's going on, C, we're going to do absolutely diddly squat about it. So as far as I can see, policy is now on hold um, for uh, some time to come until the bank uh, can work out uh, in its infinite wisdom which of these scenarios is going to come true. And I thought in some ways the, sort of the cricket metaphor was somewhat unfortunate since it's probably about the same time, 1985-6, uh, England won the Ashes in Australia since the bank got one of its forecasts right. Danny Blanchard, when you were at, on the Monetary Policy Committee, you were also involved in fighting like cats in a sack, to use Larry's charming phrase. What's it like disagreeing with the chairman of the uh, old governor of the Bank of England? Um, well, it's not a pleasant place to be. Um, he's a very strong-willed chap, um, especially when he's wrong. Um, <laughs> Do you think he's wrong now? Uh, oh, um, well, it's unclear exactly what his view is. I think you have to be very careful at these meetings. Um, the, the governor has to actually represent the view of a committee, which may or may not exactly be, be his view. 
But I think the comparison to when I was on the committee is very relevant. Um, a huge error was made in 2008 when the bank got its forecast completely wrong. And I think there's every possibility now that it's doing the same. 2008 looks a lot like now. Many of the um, surveys are in a similar kind of position. And Larry's quite right that it's an uncertain time and the data are unclear. But in those cases, you worry about the downside risks and you protect yourself against against that. And it seems to me, just as in 2008, what you should be doing is doing stimulus and making sure the downside risks don't occur. And if you're wrong, well, that's fine. Doing nothing is actually much worse. It's a very, may well be a very serious policy error. Uh, so I think it's comparable to 2008. And it looks to me like a major policy area once again, because the MPC is sitting on its hands, lost and befuddled once again. Well, the difference between now and 2008, I suppose they would say is that in 2008, inflation was going up, but all the activity figures were going down. So the economy was heading down into recession. You could see it in the quarterly figures, whereas here the quarterly, the quarterly growth figures have actually been stronger than expected. So well, it's not entirely comparable to 2008. Well, this, yes, but, the, but that's right. But the MPC's job is actually to look through the most recent quarter and to think about two years hence. There's nothing you can do about output in Q2 of 2010 or Q3. The MPC's job is to focus through it. And so it's a mistake to think about what happened this month. If you look through it, what you see is the VAT increases drop out. And actually, one of the big things people don't seem to have noticed is that house prices should have been in the index in 2008 and that would have you know, earlier, and that would have made the CPI higher. And if they were in it now, which they're not, it would be quite clear that we were headed towards deflation and pretty fast. So, you know, I, I agree with you, but I think it's a mistake to focus on what's happened now. The NPC's job is to think about two years ahead, and they aren't. Larry, if you looked at the uh, the famous fan charts that the Bank of England puts out, actually, it looks pretty confident about what growth uh, looks like over the next couple of years. I think it's unrealistically confident about it, because if you ask yourself, I mean, just do sort of economics 101 and say, where is growth going to come from? Is it going to come from the consumer? And Danny's just talked about the housing market. You know, is it going to come from, obviously not going to come from the consumer, or not, not particularly strong, I wouldn't have thought, by any stretch of imagination. Is it going to come from the government? Well, you know, seeing the biggest uh, fiscal retrenchment since the end of the First World War. I mean, is it going to come from the external sector? Well, it might, there might be a bit of a boost from devaluation, but I'd have thought it's fairly minimal given the size of trade in, in, in overall GDP, which suggests that it's all going to have to come from investment. And is investment really going to go through the roof if the consumer sector is fairly weak and the, and the, and the public sector is, is, being, is going through a process of quite painful retrenchment? I think it's kind of heroic to imagine the economy is going to grow by 3% a year or more over the next two years. Business investment is kind of George Osborne's Great White Hope. Is it also Mervyn King's? It has to be, doesn't it? I mean, there's an awful lot of talk about rebalancing both by the Chancellor and by the Governor, but there's not really very much uh, there there when it comes to how this is actually going to be uh, affected. I mean, you know, why would, you know, you know, Keynes' turn, why would animal spirits be particularly high when, you know, an awful lot of, an awful lot of businessmen rely quite heavily on the, on the public sector, either directly or indirectly for their, uh, for their businesses. And also, you know, the, the general climate is one in which the, the consumers are going to be pulling in their, pulling in their horns. I hate to agree with Larry so often, <laughs> but unfortunately, I'm going to have to. Um, if you take back the original comment that Larry made about what was said in the in the press conference, um, Mervyn talked a lot about uncertainty. So if you're a businessman, you're sitting holding this large amounts of cash, you're extremely uncertain about the future. And I'd sort of take Larry's point a little further. 
um, the, the, essentially what they're expecting is investment is going to grow at about 10% per annum in 2011, 12, and 13. Well, if Larry and I were the investment committee of a company, presumably right now we will have had to decide what was happening in 2011 and 12, and then when we get there, it will happen, and we would sit on our hands. Larry, Larry and I would probably agree again that right. well, this let, is not let, the thing this, to do. This is all getting a bit too cosy, so I'm going to break up this uh, warm consensus. Larry, just reprise the question that you asked Mervyn King at the press conference, and then I'm going to get Danny to give you an answer to it. I mean, I asked him because there are a lot of people... Yeah, all right, no caveats. Okay. Give, no, 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 the question I asked was, you know, there's an awful lot of uh, talk at the bank, and has been for various quarters about how inflation is going to come down, uh, but it hasn't come down. No, and, it, and they're forecasting it will remain high. For in, in, yeah, they say they're exactly the same in this forecast as they've said in every previous forecast. There's quite a lot, there is some rumbling in the city about the fact that uh, the bank is always saying that inflation is going to come down, but it never actually does. And you know, the, 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 the Uber, Uber uh, hawks would say that in the long run, the markets will eventually turn nasty and push up bond yields. I and mean, meanwhile, what are they forecasting for growth? Who, who? Uh, the Bank of England? The Bank of England is forecasting 3%, I think, for the okay, next... OK, so high inflation, high. relatively high inflation and growth quite healthy. Yeah. So why not... So in, in those circumstances, you know, there are people, you know, the sort of Simon Wards, Nick Parsons out there who would say the you know, Bank of England's just gone soft on inflation. It's got a credibility problem. OK, so that's Larry Elliott's Austrian brother there, Danny. How are you going to respond well, to that? First, first of all, I think you have to look through current inflation. But actually, it's a complete misunderstanding because inflation is exactly what we need right now. Let's just think this thing through. F- first of all, what we have are people that have done pretty well on tracker mortgages. There they sit doing OK. Well, if you're going to keep the, the, the tin on inflation, then those people are going to be in really bad problems as you start to raise rates. The second thing is you're then going to end up with falling house prices. Falling house prices, people can't cope. So Blanche Flass says, well, actually, these people are completely misplaced. What I actually want to have are five years of inflation of about 5%. And this has two benefits. Well, three benefits. You don't need this austerity nonsense. You reflate yourself, you know, reflate the debt away. You deal with the house price negative equity problem. Just think if there's 4 million households, 100,000 pounds a person, that's 400 billion of debt you may have to, Osborne may have to step into. But I think Larry needs to get to this point, which is what in goodness only name are you going to do to get interest? rates back to normality. You've got to get rates back to 4 or 5% sometime down the road, because when the next shot comes, you've got to cut them. So Blanche Flower's view is, please, Lord, let's have a bit of inflation for quite a while. And all this inflation targeting nonsense failed in the first place. And that's exactly what we need. We need five years or so of inflation. We don't need to raise rates. I mean, everything would be much worse if we did. So a bit of inflation, please, the saviour of the British they, people. They, 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 probably then they should be badgering George Osborne to raise the inflation target, shouldn't they? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that um, be a quite sensible uh, well, thing? Well, I think they, it they would right. be. They should be, well, they should I, raise the I agree with 3%. that. But there are other ways of doing it. I mean, for example, um, put house prices in it, or you could even th- raise the target you could do. You could take out you know, foreign-generated inflation or something. Um, but certainly if you were, say, were to, tar- uh, to target CPIY, which has taken out the VAT um, um, element, Elements, but but essentially it amounts to the same thing. You somehow or other you fiddle with the you, fiddle, you can target. fiddle with the target. You can you know you can say let's raise it, keep it at CPI but make it five. But basically the only fix in town for the British economy is to have inflation. And if not, and you have all this negative equity in the housing market, George Osborne has to go and rescue four hundred.
hundred billion pounds of bad debt that Danny Garbe calls the zombie households. The, the alternative is either you do that or you inflate away. And I'd like to hear from listeners what Plan C is because it's hard to think what what alternatives there are. Larry, da- da- Danny, actually, we'll, we'll, we'll carry on with uh, uh, the policy discussion in a second. But since you now dirty your hands with producing journalism, I want you I want you to do a bit of personality uh, analysis <laughs> for us. Ooh. Terms like uncertainty and extreme range of views and a, and as Larry's saying, kind of the kind of hints that we get from Mervyn King that there is open dissent on the Monetary Policy Committee. Can you give us some sense of who the people are who are arguing about it and where they stand, you know, vis-a-vis the Sun King of Mervyn King? Oh, OK. Um, well, obviously, the, the bank itself has a large number of staff who are responsible for producing a forecast. And unfortunately, over the last two years or so, they, the one thing you could say about it is they've been completely and utterly hopeless and wrong. So, I mean, we may get to think about what bees feel like, but the answer is that they have been completely and totally wrong. Um, and, and what has often happened is there's been negative surprises, which is you think it's going to be, this is the bottom, but next time you come in, the bottom's lower. Um, so there's, there's, there's that. It makes it very hard to forecast going forward. Um, the governor's a very strong character who's actually committed and said that he thought the fiscal retrenching was a was a, a good idea and there's a there's a stories in the media today that a lot of people don't share that view and I absolutely don't share that view as you're probably well aware but the personalities within the committee there will be a, 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 a set of views where I think in the end in, the, in this case I mean Adam Posen made the case very clearly had the most coherent um, discussion about what you need to do and Charlie Bean had a speech last week which I commented on which said you couldn't have expected us to forecast the recession well if we couldn't have expected them to forecast the recession why are we spending all this money on 500 people working on a forecast if you can't call the greatest recession going then we should scrap you hang on you've just mentioned uh Posen. Posen is essentially blanche flower mark ii he wants more quantitative easing and on the opposite it's side blanche flower with a beard isn't he <laughs> <laughs> he's shorter than me and a proper, and short, and a proper, proper american accent, accent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. he's shorter than yeah. me <laughs> um so, so so adam Posen's years that's american who wants kind of loose mm-hmm. monetary policy on the other side of the table you've got Andrew Sentence, who seems to see Weimar Germany under the bed and wants rates to go up. What are the rest of them? Where are the rest of them? Well, I think I'll just go back to Adam. It's a bit unfair on Andrew Sentence. Little, slightly unfair. Do you think that's unfair? No comment. Um, <laughs> he doesn't see Weimar. I mean, he doesn't see Weimar. He, he, would, he would say, if he, let, let, me, let me put the case. Yeah, go on. Sentence would say that the, there's been an awful, there's been a massive monetary easing and he just wants to take away a little bit of it. So you'd still have a remarkably big monetary easing, just not quite as big as it was before. That's what he wouldn't be. You know, I don't think he's, he sees wheelbarrows through the streets. It's slightly, slightly unfair. He got the recession wrong in 2008 yeah. and he called the recession, this current crisis over a year ago. Andrew Sentence has not had a good recession. Um, Where do I would, well, I would say the other benefit, similarity in a way with Adam Posen is that he, he actually comes from the United States, has experience of what's happened in the United States, as I did, and, comes and, and looks here, but is also, um, if you like, from a rather different viewpoint. And I found a great problem when I was on the committee was the tyranny of the consensus, the, the, the joint think, everyone sort of thinking the same. Um, and, and that's the worry. The worry is that you have one view, which is Adam Posen's, and everybody else is basically the same and thinks the same. And that's all always the great worry that has been on this committee that 
pretty much everybody looks the same. They're all men. Um, there is, you know, where's the representative from Scotland or Ireland or Wales or from the manufacturing sector or something else? So it's a domination of economics, but economics indubitably failed miserably. So the, de- the danger is you end up making the same. It's almost certain, I think, that either, either sentence or Posen will be right. The consensus will not be right, and eventually the consensus will move towards the sentence or the Posen view. I, I, that's that's. I mean, exactly the same way that eventually moved towards Danny's view in two thousand and eight, and then said actually there's no way we could have spotted this coming. Whereas in fact, Danny and quite a lot of the rest of us did actually save quite a long time in advance. There's a big problem coming here. So I mean, it was complete. It was complete border dash that they couldn't spot. I, the I agree. I agree with that. And especially if you sat in the United States, everything that happened in the United States repeated itself over here nine months later. And basically, the Bank of England wanted to look to the other way and said, "Oh, it can't apply here." I remember when I first went there. All I ever heard was, you know, the the, the been decoupling that the UK and the US were kind of irrelevant to each other they were separate well hogwash okay that's enough gossip let's carry on with the high fiber policy um because we keep talking about quantitative easing which is essentially injecting money into the financial system in a bid to bring down interest rates and so spur growth um it's just been launched in the US another round uh, just one problem. The German finance minister calls it clueless. Republicans have condemned it as reckless. And even the economic sage Sarah Palin has weighed in asking, what's the end game here? Danny, should we be I, having quantitative have... easing in the UK? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I have never heard such absolute nonsense. Um, I was in the, I was at the Fed two weeks ago, actually talking to the Fed, and I talked to Ben Bernanke and and others. And essentially, we are in the situation, certainly in the United States, where the Congress is unable to move, and the and essentially forecasting models are telling you that interest rates should be negative. You need more stimulus. The Fed's the only show in town. Inflation is very low. The labour market's sitting flat. So this is about trying to create some inflation. And Bernanke made it clear this is not about creating hyperinflation. He said, well, of course it isn't. But it's about, you know, if you're at minus two, you want to get to plus five. That means you have to create some inflation. Um, And these very interesting commentaries from these other people suggest that they have absolutely no idea because they didn't actually tell you what the alternative was. Um, They're going to start cutting public spending. And so so those alternatives don't look sensible. Um, If you're the ECB, then you might be unhappy about what happened because it's quite clear we've moved from currency wars to quantitative easing wars. It was clear that the markets had assumed the Fed was going to do what it did. There was a slight equity bubble, 3% or so equity bubble, and the exchange rate, the dollar, depreciated against all sorts of other current currencies. And the Bank of England should have done QE to prevent the exchange rate rising. So it didn't do it. And immediately the exchange rate rose. Uh, I'm sure what a mistake it is. And now on, on a trade weighted basis, the pound has risen by 3%, withdrawing more stimulus from the economy because of the Bank of England's incompetence. So, um, and you do that because the ECB can't act. So we should be doing that, not least because we want to prevent the level of stimulus to the economy falling. Right. So, we so, want, so we want this, is competi- we, this is competitive QE. If you so, so we want quantitative easing. When do we want it? Well, yesterday. <laughs> yesterday. We certainly should have had it last Thursday. And many of the discussions I used to have at the Bank of England, several people on the committee would always say, well, we'll wait till later. And you say, well, why would you wait till later? Always the mistakes, it turns out, were waiting till later. If you do it earlier, you can deal with it later. I mean, let's suppose you did too much QE. Well, Danny Blanchard could fix and Larry Elliott and I could fix that in three minutes. We just go, well, let's raise rates. 
But what if you don't do it and the economy starts to collapse? Now you're in deep trouble. So the risks are asymmetric. We know what to do if inflation rises. We don't know what to do if we get into deflation. We get into a liquidity trap. We, it's just too awful to think of. And so we need to do QE, especially because the government is doing exactly the wrong thing by doing this ludicrous austerity nonsense. Larry, do you agree we need QE2, as they call it, and we need it now? I, I'm a bit more sceptical than, than Danny on QE. Partly, I mean, the following reason, really, the logic is this, that, I mean, if, if QE1 worked, um, then, okay, it's worked, and therefore, you know, therefore we don't need QE2. If QE, QE1 didn't work, then let's try something, we have to try something different. I mean, don't that, agree that, with that. I mean, I think that, you know, in, in the States, I'm, I'm not sure the position quite is as bleak as... As Danny says, I mean, you know, the labour market does appear to be stabilising a bit. Jobs growth is, is up a bit. The economy is not going through the floor. It's growing at sort of 2% a year or thereabouts. I mean, if, if that's true and that's down to QE, then why do you need more QE? Uh, if it's not working, if the economy is about to collapse again, then what, what is QE going to do? What is QE2 going to do that QE1 didn't do? I mean, I think that, I, th- I mean, I, I was I, mean, I was supportive of the first dose of QE because I thought it, 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 there was a sort of, there was a basic Keynesian strategy there, which was you, shuck, you, you slash short-term rates you then use QE to bring down long-term rates, and then when that when when you get to the point where you're pushing on a piece of string, then you use fiscal policy. And I think we may well be in terms of monetary policy at the point where we're starting to push on a piece of string. And that's my that's my that's my doubt. I mean, I think the only the only rationale for QE would be if it was a much more focused, nuanced, targeted QE. I mean, I would I would favour a QE program if it was to fund a green investment bank or a national investment bank, so that you could be sure that the money was going into productive investment rather than just being used for speculation, which I think it may actually over the next six months drive up commodity prices, drive up um, drive up oil prices and lead policymakers to do exactly what they did in 2008, which is to, to, to take fright at rising inflation and then start to tighten policy too aggressively. And I think that is, that is, that is a real risk. I mean, I, 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 mean, I just wonder whether there's a sort of, whether we're getting the cost-benefit analysis right here on, 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 on QE. I mean, I'm not, I'm, not, it's not, I'm not that I'm saying we should start withdrawing QE. I'm, I'm just very sceptical about whether... The, the actual gains we're going to get from a second round of QE are going to be are going to be are going to be worth it. In the, in the Danny, lot of billions for not much return. No, I don't agree with that. I actually do, to stop, what I do agree with is Larry's point about the QE should be more targeted. I'm I'm thinking a lot about as you say green bank or infrastructure spending, but I think you've misunderstood. And here's what I think you've misunderstood. I think the big misunderstanding of the general public is the sheer scale of the shock we've been hit by. I think central bankers had in their head that this was the Great Depression. And if you think without the actions of the authorities, I have in my head that that unemployment would have been 20%, something of that ilk. So the first problem that you have is what's the counterfactual that that what would have been if we hadn't have done that? That's the first thing. But I think... We don't know, though, do we? Well, we don't know that. But I think think sitting in the seat that I sat in, if you talk to central bankers, the general view amongst them is that the scale of the shop was much bigger than people thinking it hasn't gone away. That's the first thing. But I think the thing that you've sort of um, ignored is that the agreement amongst the Western nations to put stimulus in was what helped everything. Why we have to respond now is because stimulus is being withdrawn. So I think the turning point, two sort of turning points in the UK economy were first restoring the VAT increase in January of this year and second, this austerity talk on the part of the government. It's about animal spirits. It was actually the big declines we've seen in surveys wasn't because of what the government had done. It was because the government scared people about what they were going to do. So that's... So the, so the but that's, an, that's, an, that's an argument for actually 
remedying the wrong that's being done to fiscal policy, I agree with that. rather rather than uh, doing something that might Larry, not be right. Larry, in terms I don't of disagree policy. with that, but there's I mean, if the big mistake here is actually to be tightening fiscal policy, uh, right? and therefore you're making you're making a monetary policy possibly making a monetary policy error to rectify what is a classic fiscal policy error. I wish I could fight with him, but I agree <laughs> with that. Um, I mean, if you certainly take the view in the United States, um, the, the the Congress is absolutely, you know, there's n- nothing's going to happen. So the only show in town is the is the is the monetary authority. I don't disagree with that, Larry. Um, I think that, that that I would say in the U.S. things are much worse than you than you've said. I mean, having been there to talk, I mean, I, we went, I went to talk about the labor market, and actually the reality is that job creation in the private sector, even though we're starting to see stuff, is not enough to get the unemployment rate down. It's just not enough. So at the very least, we're going to see unemployment flat. But we know what the American people said. Um, so, so, you know, job creation in the US is a problem. Michael O'Malley, as the only genuine American around the table, <laughs> can, we, can, we just, can we just bring you in very briefly to yes. be our correspondent from the Culture Wars? I mean, Larry and Danny have just agreed that what we need is some kind of stimulus. And they broadly agree that we need fiscal stimulus or monetary stimulus. And Danny really wants monetary stimulus as well. Um, and yet, you look at the coverage of, I don't know, the, the right-wing talk show hosts, you look at Sarah Palin, the Tea Party, they're really anti-stimulus, despite the kind of parlous economic state that the America's in. So what's going on there? What gives? Well, so, well, you have two different sides here. I, I mean, I can, I can quote, um, you know, uh, Lyric and David Hale that just wrote a, a book that I, I wrote about their prescriptions, and they, they actually maintain that there are two things that will halt... Uh, productivity growth in the United States, and one is a lack of a stimulus. So they do want targeted stimulus, uh, and they think that that ought to uh, continue. And the other is no new tax hikes. So keep keep the taxes. Tax cuts are really good. Tax cuts are absolutely fine, but that's not what we're seeing. Ta- I'm a tax cutter. Tax cut, but don't raise them because there's discussion in the U.S. of uh, raising taxes right now, and there's on and off again discussion of uh, consumer uh, but but why, is it, why, why is it the Tea Party gets such traction with its talk about, you know, massive inflation or, or debt running out of control? What, why, I, why, I, why is that happening? I think that there's a lot of um, misperception that somehow by balancing our budget, everything will be well again. So I think there's a lot of magical thinking going on. As long as we, we can cut our budget and do it. And by the way, no one ever talks about the pain associated with doing this. It's just, we're going to balance the budget. Everything's going to be fine. We'll go back to normal. But nobody says that there's going to be winners or losers in that debate. Well, you can follow our coverage of the Inflation Report and all the other business and economics news on our website at guardian.co.uk forward slash business. Now, do not adjust your iPod. That buzzing noise you're hearing is, if I guess right, the sound of the future of business strategy. Michael O'Malley is a management consultant, a social psychologist and a beekeeper. In his latest book, The Wisdom of Bees, he lays out 25 key insights from his experience of beekeeping and as a coach to some of the world's largest companies. Michael, explain to us what honeybees know about business that we don't. Given our conversation currently, one of the things that they do are that they're long-term thinkers, all right? So they'll take, they'll take lower short-term returns in order to do better over the long term. And what do they do? How do they do that? Well, they don't all rush to, if they find a, 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 a rich vein of nectar, the whole hive doesn't rush there to mine it because they know it will be depleted. What they do is they keep an exploratory 
they're very heavy, heavily uh, weighted in R&D investment. And in fact, it's the very opposite of what a lot of companies do. The worse it gets in the beehive, the more they send out an exploratory force. So the, the greater investment in R&D, the worse things get. And Danny actually mentioned the problem of consensus, that you get too many people, who, perhaps in a hive, perhaps around a monetary policy committee, all think one thing and then things go to pot. Yes. Do bees have arguments? Uh, no, actually, they, they actually get away from the kind of bias that was, that was described earlier. Uh, and they do it in, in two ways. One is that, first of all, uh, first of all, you have to understand that the queen does not rule the hive, that it's a decentralized organization. Workers in the field make decisions based on local cues and communication. It's better and better. It's democratic. <laughs> yeah, it's a democratic... D- d- democracy, it's, long it's, called, uh, an, it's an adversarial we- democracy is what it is because <laughs> what they'll do is they'll... Col- a queen. <laughs> 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 they collect uh, various options, for instance, in finding a new home. They will bring that information back to the well back to the swarm and and then a certain number of bees will independently place votes on which home they should go to next so it's an independent decision so you don't get this cascade of wrong-headedness you don't have one person saying i think we should do this and and that happens to be the most powerful person in the world. So there's no herd, there's no herd behavior. There's, there's, no, there's no herd behavior. No. So Larry, you sound quite convinced by all of this. No, I just think it's really, I just think it's really interesting. I mean, it's, I think it's fascinating that economics is starting to delve into these areas to find some insights that is lost from its own mechanistic, over-mathematicized versions of of reality. And I think that it's interesting. I mean, Michael's. Uh, view as well. I mean, Paul Ormond did some quite interesting work on ants. I mean, and then there is this sort of, I think there's some more interesting parts of economics now looking into the so, into some of the social science, into psychology, sociology, biology, physics, to actually try and explain why the world is as it is, rather than how you know, a bunch of macroeconomists think it ought to be or would be under certain completely untenable... And of course, um, they, people did act as herds, and most of these economic models assumed that they wouldn't. Yeah. And so that, get, that put you in a real problem. Yeah. I mean, Michael, actually, um, it's not the first time that we've used bees as a metaphor for how societies ought to work. There's a famous book called Fable of Bees, I think, by Mandeville from, what, the 16th century, um, which is all about how politics ought to be learning lessons from from bees. Are you not guilty of making a mistake, though, of just seeing some virtues in bees that you like and then trying to transpose them onto humans? I I don't think so. Uh, I mean, the the research that went into the book... uh, were thousands of articles, and it was reviewed by several extremely prominent uh, worldwide biologists. So, what I say in the book is current research, you know, is accepted knowledge. Right. Currently. And so, you're a management consultant. So, just tell me when you go to the boss of a big company, you say, you know what, you ought to be learning lessons from beehives. What kind of look do they give you back? Uh, well, you know, it depends. You know, they have, um, I've actually used a very simple measure in a call center because when foraging bees return to the hive, they hand off their nectar to receiver bees. The time it takes them to find a receiver bee tells them if they have enough receivers and foragers in the, in the field. And so they readjust their workforce according to that one metric. And so in working with a, uh, a call center, I said, 
you really only need one metric, and that is how long does it take a caller to reach you? And then you can reconfigure your whole uh, your call center according to that one, you know, and, and that's keeping maybe some some people in reserve in order to pull in, but but we used it. They still use it. It's still in effect. And do they know that their business has been restructured around bees? Yes, yeah. I told them, let's, let's, let's use a simple measure. Uh, and that's, you know, time to receipt of call. Do they get the whole argument, though, about uh, long, bees being long-termist? I mean, sort of, you know, there are some companies in the world which do take a very long-termist view and would spend a lot of money on R&D. Yes. Does, does, I mean, but there are a lot of companies who feel, feel like they're at the mercy of, you know, the fund managers to, to deliver three-month call. Uh, you know, a, a perfect case of that, yes. So I, so I do argue that you should be long-term, but when Cisco, for instance said that they were going to invest very heavily in R&D, they were just blasted by the business press over that, over that and analysts. And fortunately, John Chambers said, sorry, you know, this is a part of our long-term plan, and this is what we're sticking to, and we're thinking ahead right now. So, But you're right. I mean, there's a lot of pushback for long-termism. Okay, well, that's enough adversarial democracy for this week's podcast. Thanks to my guests, Larry Elliott, Michael O'Malley, and Danny Blanchflower. The producer was Phil Maynard. My name's Aditya Shafforty. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. Don't forget to start your free 14-day trial of audible.co.uk and to download your free audiobook, head to guardian.co.uk slash audible.